0: My name is Miriam Williamson, and I am running for the Democratic nomination for the presidency. Uh, My background uh, in terms of labor starts when I was a child. Uh, My father used to tell stories about how when he was a little boy, his father carrying him on his shoulder uh, went to a Eugene V. Debs rally. And my father in the 1930s was an organizer with the CIO. That was before there was an AFL-CIO. Right. And then my brother uh, in the late 60s, early 70s, worked for Cesar Chavez. So I was brought up in a home that was very um, positive and enthusiastic about labor. Uh, my parents always said uh, that if you ever cross a picket line, don't bother to come home. And... Uh, a scab was just considered the worst thing you could possibly be. I grew up at a time when there was pretty much of a social consensus uh, having to do with not only support for labor but respect for labor. Now, in the nineteen eighties, uh, when Reaganomics started, you know, I was I was a young woman. I was I was uh, you know at an age where I was sort of upfront and center seat to the kind of shift that Reaganomics brought about, having to do with cutting taxes, having to do with for the rich, having to do with deregulation, having to do with stockholder capitalism, stock options, all of that stuff that we know about. But one of the pillars of that movement was the demonization of labor. So I remember what was happening and I remember um, meeting people who, had a very different outlook, not only than I had been brought up with, but that had pretty much pervaded the society when I was growing up. I remember once I was um, driving with a with a woman friend, and I don't know where we went, but I saw, oh, there's a picket line. And I said to her, oh, there's a picket line. We can't go. And her response kind of shocked me. She was a very nice person, but she said, oh, no, oh, no, you just kind of go around it and you can go. And I like looked at her and I realized not only that she was not raised in the same kind of home I was, but she was raised at a different time. Because when I was growing up, if you you would have been ashamed to say that, it was just a given in the society, the importance of labor. So I saw a lot of things and I have been for that reason, very happy to see the regeneration and revitalization of labor going on. And I see it in historical terms. The establishment of labor was in response and in reaction to the first Gilded Age. And we're living through the second one. So to me, this is just a parallel phenomenon where labor is almost coming up from the ashes. And when I say the ashes, I mean the ways in which not only it's been demonized, not only that it's been um, you know, whether right to work laws or whatever ways that, you know, the, the Republicans or those on the right have actually blocked it, but even as much as that, the way so much of labor has been seduced uh, by the neoliberal Democrats, even uh, to go along, um, even at the expense of their own juice. And I see a lot of that changing now. So I think it's important. Um, I think it's, we're living at a time where it is critically, I mean, I mean, critically important, like we're six inches from the cliff here. We must repudiate the matrix of corporate power, unfettered, vulture capitalism, uh, whether it has to do with insurance companies, pharmaceutical companies, big ag, big food, big chemical, gun manufacturers, big oil defense contractors, it's all one big matrix. And um, I, we will, the ship is now listing so far to one side. <clears throat> so much public policy makes it easier and easier and easier for a small group of Americans who already have capital to get more and harder for everyone else to even make it at all. Now we were sold the ruse that by making that shift, these people would be job creators. Clearly that the business model was not job creation, it's job elimination, and it's worker exploitation. And the way I see things now is that people have woken up to that. And then what I see, and I'm curious how you see this, but what I'm seeing is not only are people waking up to that in a whole new way, but people on the both right and the left are recognizing that if you are a worker, whether you're on the right or the left, you're being screwed by the same people if you're being screwed. So this whole idea of left-wing labor populism versus right-wing populism, I I think that we have an extraordinary opportunity here because people are realizing that the real polarity is not left versus right, but top versus um, down, powerful versus powerless. And um, obviously running myself, I see electing a different kind of president and a different kind of uh, Congress and having a different kind of Supreme Court is as an important part, obviously, of riding the ship, an extremely important but I see labor is equally important. And it's the when those two partner is when um, you start, uh, course, correcting this country in ways that it needs to be course corrected now.
1: Right. right, right. Speaking of speaking of correcting everything and um, and you're running for president, what are policies that you would work on or start implementing that will help unions and organizing, <laughs> for example, Last year when, or 2020 or whatever, when Biden was running, he definitely ran on the PRO Act. The PRO Act would make it easier for unions to organize. It'll give us a lot more teeth to fight corruption and, and when the uh, corporations do illegal stuff. So, but then, but then he got into office and um, I haven't heard of the PRO Act since then. And uh, I, I, I know how politics works in my little time that I've been here in, poli- in, in, in the labor movement and in politics, I understand that that's how you win votes. That's how you. But once you get into office, it's a different story because you already got the votes, and, and you're the Democrat. So of course, Labor is going to support the Democrat. That that's that's what uh, that's what happens all the time. But would you, would you obviously support the Pro Act and the like card check neutrality, all those things that would help uh, workers to organize in the first place?
0: Well, first of all, this is why you need someone from the outside. You need someone to come in there who is not beholden to those corporate powers. And is not even going to be upset. Well, maybe you'd be upset, but not going to be stopped when you say, oh, if you do that, that won't make it the next election, uh, either because you are not running again or because you're not going to put your party uh, over your country. Uh, Absolutely, we need to support the PRO Act. Another thing that the president said he was going to support was raising the minimum wage. Now, he raised that minimum to $15 for federal workers. But then when it came time to putting that raise in the COVID uh, relief bill, he was stopped by the parliamentarian. Now, no Republican president allows himself to be stopped by the parliamentarian. When that happened to George Bush, he fired the parliamentarian. It is outrageous. You have one third of America's workforce lives on less than $15 an hour. Half of those cannot find a place to live. Meanwhile, in every major city in the United States, a living wage is over 20. So the president likes to, you know, do this, uh, oh, I'm a labor Joe. But when it comes to some very important things, including the railroad workers, one would question that. Now, he did do something the other day, though, however, I thought was very important. Um, obviously we need to bolster the NLRB throughout this president's administration so far. The word you get, or at least the words I've gotten uh, from labor is that the NLRB is good, but it just doesn't have the resources to handle everything going on. It needs obviously to be bolstered far more resources. Just the other day, the Biden administration announced something that I would definitely support. And that has to do with, as I'm sure you know, that if any uh, company is caught union busting, in the, in the run-up to an election, they are forced into negotiation. So I would be tough. I would be tough on NLR, uh, bolstering the NLRB. I would be tough um, uh, uh, with uh, the PRO Act, but also I'll tell you something. You would see me showing up. It's a picket lines while president.
2: You know, I think you hit the nail on the head. I say that a lot. And another thing I say a lot on the podcast is the main thing is to keep the main thing the, the main, main thing. thing, and that's kitchen table yeah. economics. Uh, I think sometimes social issues, other issues, can really distract from the fact that you talked about. Uh, you know how people are having difficulty paying their bills, their electric bill, their rent. Things are going up, and. Uh, right now, uh, you know, and I know you talked about rising from the ashes. The the labor movement—it's like a phoenix. All these phoenixes are rising from the ashes because the approval of labor unions is seventy-one percent, highest since nineteen sixty-five. It's just keep, really good. It keeps going up, and even Gen Z, eighty-eight percent approval rating for labor unions. So this is the time, and I know that you are uh, very active on social media, uh, TikTok. Um, you know how. How much of a role do you think social media is going to play in this election?
0: Well, I hope it's going to play a, a, a big role, and I'll tell you why. For a candidate like myself, it's the only way that I can override the invisibilization of the mainstream corporate owned media. You know, not only is the DNC saying they won't have debates. But also CNN and MSNBC are chopping wood and carrying water for the DNC. There are Republican uh, nominees and candidates who have who are lower in the polling from than I am, much lower. And they are on those uh, networks all the time. And I can't get a hearing on them. They won't. They won't have me, even though they did last time, oddly enough. Mm -hmm. So uh, the kind of thing I'm talking about No, when you talk about those kitchen table issues, Those kitchen table issues and the things that are needed in order to return dignity and justice, economic justice, to the average American worker are things which are are agreed upon by both Republicans and Democrats, interestingly enough, and they are my agenda, universal health care. We're the only advanced democracy that doesn't have universal health care. Tuition-free college and tech school, we're the only advanced democracy that doesn't have it. We need to cancel those college loans because they should never have even existed. We need free childcare. Look at how many people are working at jobs they don't like and they're doing it because that's the only place where they can get the healthcare, or that's the only way that they can pay for the child care. We should have um, universal paid family leave. We should have guaranteed housing. I have on part of my agenda an economic bill of rights, guaranteed including guaranteed housing, guaranteed sick pay, and a guaranteed living wage. Now let's be very clear here: what labor is 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 the counter is countering is unfettered corporate power. The problem we have is twofold. Number one, mainstream media is unfettered corporate power. Because ever since, particularly ever since the Telecommunications Act, they're run and they're owned by just a few major corporate entities. And number two, at this point, your major political parties aren't just serving them. They are major corporate powers. So it's almost like the viewership of the United States needs a union. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) Because we're just being uh, manipulated uh, mercilessly.
1: Yeah. And, and I agree. That's the the whole thing about social media. We're creating our own platforms to like circumvent the whole mainstream media. And I believe that that's why we started this podcast too, is to just, uh, put it out there, put out the word of labor. We're we want to control the narrative of what, of what labor is, not what they hear from corporations or MSNBC or CNN, because last year when the railroad workers were going to go on strike, um, like MSNBC was talking to hedge fund guys and uh, and the bosses, the CEOs, and they got people to believe, my girlfriend included, <laughs> uh, like saying things like, oh no, but what about Christmas? And and what about the presents? And I'm like, wait, what? we're in labor. My girlfriend's a teacher. And I'm like, if it got her thinking that way, I could only imagine people that are not in labor. So that's why we created this podcast, because I believe that we need to control the narrative as much as possible, because they're not doing it for us. Like MSNBC, CNN, Fox News, whatever, their job is to hold the status quo, period, however it looks. And, um, So yeah no i totally agree with you on that but real quick another thing that we're pushing here in california um, is unemployment benefits for striking workers um i'm an organizer going on strike is probably the hardest thing anybody will ever do in their lives because they're putting everything on the line not knowing what's going to happen on the other end if they're going to lose their jobs they lose their health care benefits not even not all unions have strike funds so Sometimes they're out there not making any money. They have to pick up other jobs or whatnot. Would you be in supportive of, of unemployment benefits? Some states have already passed it. We uh, the- Absolutely.
0: Yeah, to be federal law. It should absolutely right. be federal law. But I'd like to go back to something else you said, if I may, and that has to do with yes. the role of social media. You're absolutely right, of course, that social media, independent media in general, is, is this counterforce to the corporate media. This is particularly... It works with younger people because many of these younger people like my daughter, she's a millennial, they don't even they don't even plug in their television. They're not even getting cable news. That's not even of interest to them. At the same time, we should also realize that the corporate owned dominant establishment has figured out what we're doing. And so they come onto social media. Mm-hmm. And we thought, oh, with social media, we'll have our own narrative. With independent media, we'll have our own narrative. And now they have all these corporate shills, right? Or acting like, yeah. So I, I think nothing compensates for lack of critical thought.
2: Mary we all I- have to be. I have to tell you a funny story. So um, when my daughter was 15 years old, my wife started to notice she had all these new clothes, new jewelry, makeup, jackets, $300 shoes, all of this stuff. And my wife says, Isabel, you don't have any money. The only money you have is what I give you, what daddy gives you, or maybe what you get for Christmas. Where are you getting all this stuff? She's all, well, I'm really popular on Instagram and clothing companies are sponsoring me and give me free clothes. I just need to put a picture of the clothes on, put in my Instagram account and some are giving me money. My daughter has 72,000 followers on Instagram and I wasn't on Instagram at the time, but it's just I that when that happened, it really kind of hit me, wow, this is really big. It's bigger than I, I ever thought. And anytime I do a TikTok now, I talk to my daughter and be like, Isabel, what do you think of this one? What do you think of this one? You know, and she helps me and I'm learning. She's
0: obviously talented at it. If at 15 years old, she was already, (laughs) you know, know, obviously she knows what she's doing, but she needs her parents to make sure her values are cool, And she's not being seduced and co-opted by, you know,
2: yeah. It's just a new a new generation, um, but I, I, it's exciting. But the role of social media, I think it is important. And yeah, you're you're right. But uh, she's she's older now. She's she's 19, but uh, now she's doing the TikTok thing. So it's just it, it's exciting. And you know, we came up with these platforms. I'm your union brother. This is organizing monster, and we just want to lift up the labor movement and cross pollinate on all these platforms because I might've told you earlier off, off camera, but uh, 40 million followers of the labor movement on TikTok. I mean, it is, it is exciting. So anyway, I just wanted to say you know,
0: that. Winston Churchill once said that you can always count on Americans to do the right thing after they have exhausted every other option. And when you look at this country historically, sometimes we are asleep for a long time about something. I mean, this Reaganomics craziness started in the 1980s. And we're often distracted, intellectually lazy, complacent, for whatever reason, taking things for granted we shouldn't take for granted. So sometimes we wake up late. But when we do wake up, we slam it like nobody's business. And I think we are in such a moment right now when you talk about how many people, when you said that among young people, 88% support unions, people everywhere, like their eyes are opening, and once again, on the right and the left, and people are recognizing what's really going on in this country and rising, rising to the occasion, I think we have a short window, and we need to rush through. Um, because right now, neither major political party really recognizes the shifting political dynamics the rumbling going on beneath the surface of things, people having to work two and three jobs, people literally unable to afford uh, to feed their children. My God, you know, in New Hampshire, half the people are food insecure. This is in the richest country in the world. The fact that one in four Americans live with a medical debt and people's lives are falling apart. People's lives are falling apart. This is more than injustice. This This is assault. This is an assault on the condition of the working people of the United States. Now, as a Democratic candidate, I remind you, who thinks of myself as a Roosevelt Democrat, um, the Democratic Party used to and needs to, once again, stand for unequivocal and unabashed advocacy for the working people of the United States. And um, I think there's a desire for that. And um, there's more than a desire, there's a need for it, or, you um, we're six inches from some catastrophic consequences. right? And those catastrophic consequences are already being experienced by people. You know, we talked about COVID as an emergency. Well, poverty is an emergency. Hunger is an emergency. Lack of healthcare in many cases is an emergency. Rationing your insulin is an emergency. Having to work two or three jobs, uh, living out of your car, still working. Afraid to have your kids in school because you're afraid that if the school officials found out about it, they come take your child. So you homeschool your child, but you're living in a car. And how are you going to homeschool without Wi-Fi? So you go into the McDonald's. This is the kind of thing that millions of Americans are experiencing every single day. And the fact, and thank God we have labor, thank God we have organized labor, because otherwise there's no valve. You know, like I said, we have two major valves: we have labor and we have we do still have elections. And we need a revolution at the ballot box. And we need the kind of revolution that's already happening uh, with our attitudes and labor. Right. Amen.
1: And you were mentioning how like disconnected our leadership is. Um, and like, like I said, we're in labor. We go to the cocktail parties. We go to the happy hours. We go to the events. We know. We, we, we probably know all the politicians here in San Diego the mayor the board of Supervisors city council members um, but I do from what I've seen people are disconnected with reality because this comedian I said it on the last, last po- podcast I'll say it again um, a comedian made a joke he said the closer you get to leadership or becoming rich is like the TVs uh, the closer you get to a TV a no school TV everything gets pixelated and the the image is no longer there it's distorted that's that's the analogy there is the closer you get to leadership or or you're away from the working class is you're no longer seeing what's really going on in society so I believe that that everybody in these cocktail parties for the most part does get disconnected naturally and maybe it's the same case for like politicians as well I believe like running in presidency so why do you what do you think or why are you the exception to this rule that you're not gonna be disconnected from the working class? Um, Yeah.
0: Well, first of all, it's an excellent question. First of all, I wanted to to deconstruct the question because you are so right. Uh, Barbara Ehrenreich, who died not that long ago, uh, wrote a book called Nickel and Dimed. I don't know if you've ever read that book. It's one of the real classics about everything we're talking about here. Mm -hmm. She wrote an article that was, I think a New York Times um, um, op-ed page back in the 1990s and she said something extraordinary she said I'll tell you what happened to the American left she said everybody got invited to the White House once mm-hmm. you are so right people get seduced mm-hmm. I remember um, asking a friend who founded an, um, a non anti-poverty organization I remember asking him at, after Obama had been in office for a while I said, what's the difference? What's the main difference between the Obama administration and the Bush administration? And his answer was chilling. He said, well, the Obama administration returns our calls, which, is, which means no difference whatsoever. Mm-hmm. But too many people who, they got invited to a reception, or in this case, they got in office. Why am I, I'm a progressive running for president. Hello, why is there only one progressive? Running for the Democratic nomination, where are all those people who will, oh, Congress people, et cetera, because they're in. Once you're in, you get locked in. Oh, you want to keep your, you know, you don't want to upset the Democratic uh, corporatist leadership because then you'll lose your your committee chairmanship, or you they might come after you in the next primary. So when you say, "Why me?" These people can't do anything for me. I'm seventy-one years old. I've been around. I'm very socioeconomically well traveled. My work has it led me to spend a lot of time. Quality time with the most advantaged people in this country, and my work has taken me to spend a lot of time, quality time with the least advantaged people of this country. Now, I'm not saying it's nice people versus not nice people, because it's not, but it is a rigged system in which for some people, the system is set up for those who have capital, those people, to get even more of it, And the system makes it harder and harder for other people to even make it at all. The system, the presidency, I mean, surely there are some outer things of the House and all that. I'm sure it's lovely. But in terms of the system and what it can give you, it's going to take somebody from the outside right now who's just not overly impressed. And in one of the things I've been saying, which you're not supposed to say if you're running for president, but I think in my case, it matters. I'm only running for one term. Because what I want to do, including in issues like you and I are discussing, you wouldn't even think of doing if you were thinking of running again. That's number one, plus my age, it's time after that, you know, give this, I always say I want to do a chiropractic adjustment, this country needs its heart back and the American people need their spine back. And then get us around the curve. Now, you will not be able to turn the ship around entirely in four years, but you can get it around the curve and then turn it to a younger generation. And that younger generation, like you said, doesn't have outmoded historical memories about labor. They see the importance. And um, so I just don't I don't see what that system can give me. I'm not, I mean, I've been around and I, I'm not locked in by them. I'm not, in fact, I've seen what they've done to me. Alrighty. And I know that's what they do to me who doesn't agree with them. So if if I know what they've done to me, I know what they're doing in a different way in various forms to millions and millions of people in this country who reject their corporatist neoliberal perspectives. And I would try my best to be the voice of those people.
2: Absolutely. I I know it's uh, difficult for people. Uh, They get starstruck when there's high profile elected officials um i think what's happening right now in the labor movement is that you have these sean o'brien from the teamsters you have sarah nelson the flight attendants union you have um gosh chris, chris smalls chris i mean these labor leaders are rising up and they're using a different type of language they curse a lot and they and but i think that they're getting their point across i think labor does need stars these people to stand up and you know it, it takes a village right right so uh,
0: i think it's, I'm, I'm i'm sorry
1: no go for it go.
0: oh i was just going to say that i i greatly admire Sarah Nelson and I greatly admire Christian Smalls for uh, very much the reasons that you said they're cultural icons it's uh that's way cool I mean that says something really good Uh, you know if if those are our new you know cultural hipster heroes good Uh, let's just hope that that stays as pure as it is
1: right I think I think uh, with everything, it's natural to get unpure real quick with what we just discussed. But that's the whole point of creating like a system or a new wave or a new moment where we check ourselves as labor. We're checking ourselves as we go with labor. With this podcast, we name drop all the time here. We talk so much shit. But at the same time, I'm an organizer, so my job is to organize and grow the union and the labor movement. He's a rep, so his job is to represent workers. So... We're, we're we're in it no matter what kind of deal this is just for fun we're not i mean everything comes out of our pocket but real quick the the economy that we have right now is gig it's a gig economy everything uh, to make it everybody is having two or three jobs i know the biden administration brags about how many jobs it's it's created but like i mean if you're you're starting at zero it's not it's not something to brag about if we lost millions of jobs during COVID and then you're back to you know what I mean, so this gig economy that we have right now is that a success and how do you and what would you implement or how would you help workers. organize in this gig economy, because in in the gig economy uh it's harder for workers to organize if corporations keep misclassifying workers we can't organize uh if they're not employees, we can't organize them so. Well, can. go for it
0: many of the benefits that they would be organizing in order to achieve should be given to them just by by virtue of the fact that they are Americans. That's why we should have universal health care. That's why we should have tuition free college and tech school and all of those other things that I'd mentioned. You know, in the 1970s, the average American worker could afford a house, could afford a car, could afford a yearly vacation, could afford for one parent to stay home if they wanted and could afford to send their kids to college. And it's not an accident that it is not that way anymore. It is because of a massive transfer of wealth into the hands of 1% to 10% of our people. Now, what do we need to fix it? I think we should repeal the 2017 $2 trillion tax cut that gave 83 cents of every dollar to the richest corporations and individuals. It will never pay for itself. This was, as I said before, they're not job creators. is often job eliminators. We should put back in the middle class tax cut because that should have been there to begin with. We should we should stop all these ridiculous corporate subsidies. I, you know, before Reagan, stock buybacks were illegal, and CEOs being paid by stock options were illegal. We have to unravel and dismantle this system of injustice by which corporations have basically uh, the mantle of tyranny over the American working class. Right,
1: right, right. Uh, another question then. Um... The, the green the green the green economy uh we're in labor a lot of construction a lot of fuel industry how would you how would you have like a just transition because I, I i know you believe in climate change i i follow you uh but how would how would you not leave these workers behind during such a transition uh people in the oil industry and in the coal industry the miners <laughs> or whatnot
0: very carefully That's why you use the word just there are many people who work in research, technology and manufacturing, and there are lateral positions. What you're saying is very true. I've had people say to me, wait a minute, I make over one hundred thousand dollars in a career that is related to big oil. Are you telling me you want me to go make fifteen dollars an hour as a solar panel uh, Mm -hmm. implementer? No, that person has a legitimate point. And Uh, This would be front and foremost in my mind and in my communication. This is why I speak of it much like a World War Two level mass mobilization you have to mobilize, you have to strategize. You know, if you're gonna go fight a, fight the Nazis in World War II, you didn't just land soldiers out, you know, uh, you know, parachute them in and say, go do something. This had to be very well organized. And the people who are working now in the kinds of unions that you're talking about, in the kinds of careers that you're talking about, which would by definition be phased out over time as you're talking about a ramping down of fossil fuel extraction rather than ramping up. Right now, the president is giving more oil drilling permits even than Trump did. We are conti- Even though we are making some healthy investments in green, we will continue to invest in dirty. We won't make it this way. But the people that you're talking about, uh, they need to be prioritized. They need to be prioritized for new green jobs. There has to be massive retraining. And you just have to have a woman in the White House who said, nobody's going to fall through the cracks on my watch. It's not going to happen.
2: On our one of our podcasts, we actually had a uh, Cornell West who's running for president also um, Green Party, and uh, we asked him uh, a question I go do we have a two party system. Uh, and uh, he talked about, um, or I said, does that a defeatist term saying that, um, what do you think about third uh, party or another party coming in uh with different ideas and or do you think we have to it's almost like you only have two choices sometimes democrat republican i think the last person that ran was was it ross perot back in the day so um we have, you,
0: well later uh La- ralph yeah. Nader.
2: yeah ralph nader yeah
0: so so let's look at the whole picture let's go all the way back uh george washington in his farewell address warned us about political parties. And he said that they could become, they could form factions of men, he said, who cared more about their party than their country. And boy, is that yes. wow. Secondly, John Adams, John Adams said he saw them as the greatest threat to democracy. So the distrust and the warning about what parties could become has been with us from the beginning. Now, if you look at the history of the United States, third party voices have been extremely important um, abolition came from the abolitionist party. Women's suffrage came from the women's party. It's interesting that social security came from the socialist party. So third party voices, even when we developed as a two-party system, third party voices were extremely important. What started happening several years ago was this unholy alliance uh, between the democratic and the republican parties, making it very, very difficult to their mutual benefit To make it harder and harder and harder. An example of this, of course, was when the two parties took over the presidential debates from the League of Women Voters, and that's why they were able to leave out Ralph Nader, etc. They call themselves the Debate Commission. Really what they are is the, you know, just the, you know, operatives from both those parties. So what has happened now, you know, and it, it I think a lot of people ask, I've asked, everybody's asked, I think who's even just thought about it for five minutes. If only the founders had made us as a parliamentary system, then it wouldn't be so hard for more voices to be heard. But that's, they did what they did for the reason, whatever reason they did it, we're not gonna change that now. So look, I think that everybody should run as Cornell is running for green, I'm running within the democratic party. Everybody has to follow their own conscience. Right. it's obviously a conundrum. It's obviously a conundrum. I'm in the middle of, of the belly of that beast right now. Nobody has to uh, point out to me that the corporatist elite leadership of the Democratic Party does whatever they feel they need to do to peripheralize progressive voices. Um, on the other hand, I see both sides. And uh, so Cornell's heart uh, leads him to run third party. Uh, I'm Uh, I remember a time when the Democratic Party um, when when real liberalism, real progressivism was a much more uh, powerful uh, force within American politics and within the Democratic Party. I'm standing for that. Um, I think it's possible, uh, but Cornell should stand for what he feels moved to stand for. Um, That's what democracy should be. Everybody should go where they feel they can best be, be of service.
2: things can change i I think uh uh, lincoln was a whig congressman and uh and then eventually became the og
1: republican third party
0: because republicans then were democrats now yeah (laughs) yeah
1: Yeah. and um i think that's interesting that you bring that up that uh like parties if we focus on parties and be careful of parties and the quotes that you quoted of the previous presidents and stuff because we had lorena gonzalez fletcher on last week and she's a executive secretary treasurer of the of the, of the California Labor Federation, the largest federation in the country. Uh, we had her on, and we asked her about a labor party, starting a labor party, because all we do, me and Chris, all we do is tweet about labor parties, this and that, because we think it'd be cool. But she, she I, her answer surprised me. She said that something similar to what you said, which was, we don't need another party to just focus all our energy in, and you just, and then... I don't know. It kind of it's interesting that you bring up the same kind of comments to where it'll just be another party that people will become elites in and then they'll have their loyalty to the party instead of the labor movement.
0: You know, I think I think two things. First of all, what you're saying is really important. Everybody seems to think if it's not the Democratic or Republican Party, they're going to be so pure and they're not going to have their issues and they can't be co-opted. Right. Yes, they can. Parties are parties. It's the very nature of being a party. And secondly, I think what that woman is expressing is what I'm expressing. Are we going after real political power here or not, guys? Because if your your real goal is the harnessing of political power for the purposes we're speaking of, I think you analyze that question in a different way than if you just want to get your voice out there.
1: Right, right. Um, I have another question. What would be the first thing you would try to implement as president day one, what would he be your number one priority to push?
0: Cancel the Willow project. We're going to stop right, we're going to start ramping down, not ramping up uh, fossil fuel extraction. Right now, if you look at the Willow project, the $8 billion ConocoPhillips oil extraction project on the North Slope of Alaska, you combine that with all the drilling permits given to uh, oil companies, they completely nullify any benefits of the, um, of the Inflation Reduction Act, the green investments that are there now. So I do that. Number one, number two, I cancel all contracts that the government has with union-busting companies. Uh, why does the government have a contract with with Jeff Bezos with with Amazon? Uh, I would uh, uh, want to see audited every penny that the Pentagon spends. I want to deschedule marijuana. I want to uh, start a conclave with the greatest minds in the United States having to do with early childhood, because I think of the United States, uh, the American child as at risk in ways that are absolutely unacceptable. I wanna start a department of peace. Uh, I wanna start talking about ending the drug war and taking a really good look at that and whether or not it's working, which it isn't. And uh, I want to do the things you and I have talked about, having to do with support for the PRO Act, getting started very quickly uh at uh bolstering the NLRB um just get started you know it's all of, we we tend to look stand back and think well that we have so many challenges but there really it's one big challenge here and that is the challenge of the overreach and the overinfluence of, of of money namely corporate money on our political system we have to deal with the corporate capture of all of these agencies Uh, whether it has to do with, you know, corporate executives from big agriculture that have anything to do with our agricultural company, has to do with our our, uh, agency, has to do with something like our Department of Defense being led by a man who is a former Raytheon board member. I get in there and all that stuff gets, we start cleaning out all that stuff and uh, bring to the fore. When you're talking about labor, you know, the the working people of the United States or the majority of the people of the United States, and this is supposed to be a government of the people, by the people and for the people. Labor is not just some peripheral interest. Labor, whether people are in organized labor or not, people mm-hmm. who labor are the people of the United States. And we become a government of the corporations, by the corporations and for the corporations. And um, on my watch, that hit, that uh, paradigm takes a huge hit.
1: <laughs> cool, uh, well, honestly, thank you for coming on. I know we almost had you for an hour. Um, we, again, we're not, we're not the biggest podcast, but we're the hottest labor podcast in San Diego, um, self-proclaimed self-proclaimed and, uh, and (laughs) we're we're super involved. We're super involved with everything here in San Diego and in California, and we're going to grow this platform. And honestly, like we, we, we support anybody, anywhere, wherever they decide to run, because this big problem that we have corporate greed, the corporate agenda is, the only way we can defeat it is by having multiple angles at it. Um, we're not going to defeat cute. it by just having a closed mind to it. This is the only way you can solve this problem. I, okay, we never solved it, so uh, let's try different things. However, we can do it. So, real quick, ending this episode. Any last words to our to our you know our thousands of viewers and stuff? You know, uh, I know I know we're, we're labor though, and people that follow this are mainly people in labor. So yeah, so any last words, Marian?
0: The majority of American people can't absorb a $400 unexpected expenditure. The majority of American people live paycheck to paycheck. People's lives are falling apart. Uh, People are dying deaths of despair. There's no way to overestimate the debilitating crippling effect of debt and chronic economic stress. It's ruining families ruining marriages, ruining our relationship with our children just so people don't even have the bandwidth because they're being tyrannized by the need to work hours that are unfair at work that is unfair um, in situations that they don't love. And this is not not what we should have in the richest country in the world or a country dedicated to democracy. We are a country in which we have allowed economic principles and not even fair economic principles, corporatist economic principles to take precedence over the safety and the health and the well-being of the American people. We don't need economic principles and, and, and an unfair to capitalism. those are not God. God is love. and that's why we need to move to a governing by humanitarian principles and democratic principles. And uh, I appreciate your having me on if, it, if anyone feels, uh, who is listening uh, feels in alignment with the things that I've said? I hope that you will go to marianne2024.com. That's M A R I A N N E, 2024.com. And I hope that you'll join the campaign, join the movement, um, volunteer, be part of the phone banking, uh, be part of the uh, the outcry, as it were, of a generation of Americans who say, enough is enough.
2: Well, thank you, Mary, thank-
0: having me on.
1: Thank you, and have a good uh, rest of your day. Thank you.
0: Good luck to you. Good luck stay, stay the badass, stay the cool podcast, in H- San Diego podcast. Yeah, uh, you have the right thing going on. God bless you, guys. Oh, re- re- for re- having
1: me. Re- real quick, re- re- real quick, maybe uh, maybe we can just clip this. But um, can you say that? Can you say Union or Bust is the hottest labor podcast in San Diego? Okay,
0: you won't get in trouble okay. for that, I promise. Okay, Union or Bust is the hottest labor okay union or bust is the hottest labor podcast in san diego
1: there there you got it
2: thank you for hanging out with some troublemakers marianne
0: yeah well right back at you thank you guys cool. much good luck, luck. bye